You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our passage for today is 2 Corinthians 5, 6, 16 to 21. And I think it's probably one of the most important passages in the New Testament. Uh, I feel kind of weird saying that. Um, they're all scripture, right? But in this one, we have a sort of concise little nutshell of what Jesus Christ's work in the world for us and in us means. More generally, we have a concise little nutshell really of the storyline of the entire Bible here in these six verses. That being said, there's obviously a lot to unpack here, um, and we won't get to all of it today, but we can certainly hit the high notes. So before we dive in in earnest, I wonder if you'd pray with me and for me. Lord, open our ears to hear you, open our eyes to see you, and open our hearts to love you. Help us to read your word well, and to worship you well in this time. In your son, Jesus Christ, now we pray. Amen. Okay, so the lectionary passage tonight runs from verse 16 down to verse 21, but tonight I really just want to focus on 17 to 21. So if you were, you know, hearing this passage read and thinking, man, like verse 16 is where it is, tonight just might not be your night. Uh, I think verse 16 probably goes with the preceding paragraph uh, a little better than it does this one. So in order for us to kind of narrow our focus as much as possible, We're just going to focus on those five verses, 17 to 21. Uh, Again, no shade to verse 16. It's a great one. I just think it probably goes better in the passage just before this. So all that out of the way, this passage, these five verses, breaks down really well into two thematic elements. Now, these two elements don't break super cleanly on a verse-by-verse basis, and... They're super intertwined with each other. Throughout the passage periodically, Paul will talk about the big picture, objective, outside of us element of Christ's work. And then at other times, he'll move forward to talk about how that objective, outside of us, historical element of Christ's work manifests itself for us and for our individual experience. This is essentially the difference between what some theologians will call the historia salutis, the history of salvation, on one hand, that part of God's work that happens independently of you and I, that happens 2,000 years ago on a small strip of land in the Middle East, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, all these things that happen uh, really without our involvement. They happen outside of us objectively, regardless of of whether we came to be here in Birmingham, Alabama 2,000 years later or not. And on the other hand, the Ordo Salutis, or, or what's often called the Order of Salvation, how that work outside of us that took place 2,000 years ago gets applied to us or credited to our account in the present by the Holy Spirit when the Lord Jesus draws us to himself. It's this distinction that I think Paul really has in mind here in this passage and that really helps organize his thought in the midst of these five verses. 
these two things, the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation, the outside of us work that occurs in history and the way that that is applied to us by the Holy Spirit, they play really well together in these five verses. They go hand in glove. To have one without the other for Paul, I think, is generally unconscionable to have a sort of set of events that happened 2,000 years ago that has really no bearing on our present lives doesn't really do anything for us here, right? But to only have those things applied to us without the events themselves is, is use, useless, right? That, that application would have no bearing in reality. So these two must go together. They're inseparable. It's our goal to kind of show you that over the course of the night. So for Paul, this macro historical level event, Christ's coming, his life, his death, his resurrection... All that for Paul is a paradigm-shifting event. Look with me at verse 17 real quick, and let's let's try to really look deeply at, at every word that Paul's written here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone has been joined to Christ by faith, he is a new creation. Something new, something regenerative has happened to him or her. Like the Grinch whose heart grew three sizes that day, the person who comes to know the Lord is brought out of death and into real and true and abundant life. Something new, something wonderful, something just incredible has taken place in them as Christ has taken up residence in their hearts, right? They are made a new creation in a really real and ultimate sense. But Christ's work can't be abstracted at just the individual level here. It can't merely and only be applied to us, to you and I, in an individual sense. As if all the Lord Jesus was doing, as wonderful as it is, was paying for our sins when he was on the earth. This is, I think, a place where conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians like ourselves are are probably a little short-sighted. He certainly was paying for our sin and earning a righteousness for us, as Paul says in verse 21 of this very passage. But if we stop there, we miss the rest of the Lord Jesus' incredible universe-renewing work. According to Paul, this individual phenomenon that takes place in us, this move from death to life, is just one piece of a much larger puzzle. You are a new creation. I am a new creation. Why? How is that the case? Because the old has passed away and the new has come on an even more fundamental level. An entirely new state of affairs has been inaugurated or has begun because of what Christ has done. This language, the old passing away and the new coming, is first used in Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19, to talk about a new exodus, a final exodus, an ultimate exodus for God's people. If you'll remember, God bringing his people out of physical slavery through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land becomes sort of the paradigmatic salvation event in the Old Testament. It's what the Israelites look back to over and over again to remind themselves of God's faithfulness. And yet, that exodus 
pointed it to a truer and more brilliant exodus to come, an exodus in which God would deliver his people not just from physical slavery in the land of Egypt, but from a much more ever-present and nefarious slavery spiritually to sin and its consequences and be liberated into God's new creation. This is the new thing that Paul's talking about. This is the new that has come in place of the old that has passed away. Christ and his work to pay for our sins and give us his righteousness, yes, cheers and amen, that's a new thing and it's wonderful, it's great, we should never stop talking about it, but that new thing is also Christ's work to begin, even now, to make all things new. In a very real sense, beginning with Christ's first coming into this world 2,000 years ago, God has begun recreating the cosmos, the universe as a whole, beating back the effects of the fall and of sin. He's beginning to renew all things. You know, we see a little taste of this even in Jesus' miracles when he heals blind people or gives them back their sight or heals paralytics and causes them to walk again. These aren't just little party tricks that Jesus does to impress the Pharisees, right? They're they're tokens almost of what Jesus has really come to do, of Jesus beating back the effects of death and sin from Genesis 3. You know, this is an aspect of, of Christ's work in the world that I just, I don't think we can afford to neglect, especially today. It'd be easy, at least it's easy for me, to look around and take stock of the world I live in and think that things are maybe like not so great, to use a little euphemism. There's a literal war happening in Eastern Europe. You can flip on your television, see harrowing images and videos from that conflict that make it clear to us that our world is in a lot of ways in a state of violence and despair. We've all just been through a global pandemic the cost, of human, the cost of which in human life and flourishing is much higher than just the bare death toll that you'll see on the Worldometer's website or the Johns Hopkins COVID page. Nellie Bowles reported just this week that uh, more adults aged 18 to 65 died of alcohol-related causes in 2020 than of COVID. That's shocking. According to the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, it's an acronym we all probably know very well now, the number of deaths with an underlying cause of alcohol-associated liver diseases increased 22.4%, and the number of deaths with an underlying cause of alcohol-related mental and behavioral disorders increased 35.1%. Opioid overdose deaths involving alcohol as a contributing cause increased 40.8%. Deaths in which alcohol contributed to overdoses specifically on synthetic opioids other than methadone, this would be like fentanyl, increased 59.2%. Close quote. That is what statisticians will call deaths of despair, right? That's, that's not an indictment of a country that likes alcohol a little too much. That's an indictment of a culture overall that provides little to no meaning to the people who live and move and have their being within it. It's not necessarily a crisis of alcoholism. It's a crisis of purpose. 
And all that's to say nothing of the mental health and Oxycontin epidemics or really just like the run-of-the-mill grief and loss that you and I experience as a result of the fact that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world that's poisoned by sin, death, sickness, and all the effects thereof. There's no way to euphemize, I don't think, our, our way out of the hopelessness or sadness or despair that accompanies us every day in this world. But I think that's one of the things that's so great about the gospel. It takes the fallenness of the world, the sinfulness of the world, the despair, the hopelessness, and the sadness of the world incredibly seriously. So seriously, in fact, that God himself would take on flesh and come into his creation to save it. So seriously, in fact, that God's response isn't to destroy it, it's to recreate it. Now, this recreation has already started, despite, it, despite everything, all those statistics, everything else I've just said to you. It won't be finished until Christ returns, to be sure, but it has already started. We see shades of it even now, even in the midst of all the hurt and all the pain that's constitutive of the human experience post-Genesis 3. You and I experience sanctification. We experience a growth in holiness, and yet we still wait ultimately for the day when we will no longer sin. We experience spiritual healing from sin and its effects, but we wait finally to be healed from, to be healed physically from death and sickness that will one day come for us all. We experience Christ's lordship in our individual lives, but we wait for his kingdom to ultimately come on earth as it is in heaven, right? See, even though we wait for all these things to fully and ultimately come, we experience shades of Christ's new creation even now. This is what Paul means in this passage by the ministry of reconciliation, this phrase that he uses in verse 20. Reconciliation and the new creation are inseparable for Paul. These, these two things go together uh, hand and glove. In Christ, reconciliation takes place on a micro level, on an individual level, right on an order of salvation level. Sinners like us who are naturally hostile to God because of the sinful nature that we've inherited from Adam are reconciled to God as we have the punishment that was rightfully hanging over our heads because of our sin removed through Christ. This is a foretaste, this micro-level reconciliation is a foretaste, a down payment, if you will, on the reconciliation that Christ will perform creation-wide at the last day. Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation, this whole created order, the whole universe is groaning under the weight of sin. The created order is even affected by the presence of sin in this world. So it must be reconciled. It must have the weight of sin removed from it as well. It's this full-orbed, robust message of reconciliation, both personal and cosmic, both micro and macro, both history of salvation and order of salvation that God has entrusted to us as ambassadors of Christ, as Paul says in this passage. It's important, I think, that Paul uses the word ambassadors here to refer to Christians. 
right? What do ambassadors do? They advocate for their home countries in a foreign land. They maintain diplomatic relationships between their home countries and the country to which they're posted. This is the role Christians are to play in the world today, right? Posted in a foreign land. Your citizenship is no longer here. It's in heaven to set forth the beauty and the glory of Christ and his kingdom to a world that's in desperate need of the hope and joy for which they were created. That's, that is the Christian ambassadorship in a nutshell. You know, if you ever go to another country, right, like you can always pick out other Americans. You know, if you like go to Israel or Britain or, you know, wherever, you can always tell like that's an American person. Uh, in a lot of places, especially non-Western ones, Americans stick out like sore thumbs, right? They've like always got a fanny pack and like a Yankees hat on and um, you know who the Americans are. We, we take the essence of the United States for better or for worse with us wherever we go. Our Americanness kind of follows us like a cloud wherever we head abroad. The same, I think, is true of Christians. After you've experienced life in Christ, naturally will exude the love of Christ from you wherever you go. The better acquainted you become with your new residence, with your new king, the more you'll start to look like him. The more you love the person Jesus, the more you'll just naturally sort of out of an outflow, ambassadorize, if you will, for him. It's kind of like this. I, I love Reuben sandwiches. I think they are just like the greatest things that humans have ever put together, right? They're very simple ingredients. It's rye bread, corned beef, sauerkraut cheese, and Thousand Island dressing, right? That's five things, and yet those five simple things come together to make one just gorgeous work of art, right? Uh, how, how that works, I think, is, is something that will just like never stop blowing my mind, right? If, if you spend enough time with me, if you hang out with me for long enough, you're going to hear, you already have heard, about the virtue, the wonder, the awesomeness, right, of Reuben sandwiches. In a similar way, as you spend time with folks who don't know the Lord Jesus, you'll naturally exude the joy and the hope that can only come from him naturally come out of you just like fruit comes off a vine or just like comments about Reuben sandwiches come from me. That's what it is to be an ambassador of Christ's new creation kingdom. It's not to just hawk a better religion to somebody who needs a new Enneagram system, but it's to set forth a new identity, a new home, a new story, a new destiny, and a new eternity that's already begun here and now. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.